When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The premiere of season three of Barry, Forgiving Jeff, is over, but we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. Mike Bloom here. It is finally here. Six months in showtime, much more than six months in real time. Barry season three has finally arrived. We have new stuff to talk about and a lot of new stuff to talk about at that. And I am very excited to break it all down with my co-host here, someone who is Always forgiven in any capacity, no cap or caps lock. Uh, Deidre Lipsicus. Deidre, how are you? Ha, ha, ha. Thank you to the show for providing me a new vocal warm-up for this week. I'm doing great. It, this is something that does, much like this podcast, require partnership because you have to, if I recall correctly, it's been a while since I've done this one, lie on the stomach of somebody and they use their diaphragm to go ha, ha, ha. And then that Goodness. causes everyone to... Uh, uproariously laugh well that certainly wasn't part of sally's ha 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 vocal warm-up and um i'm not in the position to uh to pick the puppy up and have him lay on my belly but uh that would be much cuddlier i think than having a grown adult in an acting class lay on my entire stomach yeah that's the thing as well is that acting and specifically the theater uh they talk about like breeding a certain amount of intimacy i do think in retrospect it's not the the most fantastic set of morals to have to be like <laughs> behind the stage we truly let ourselves go and feel each other and yeah now that i think about it maybe laying on someone's stomach and having them forcefully you know gutturally throw their diaphragm up and down might be an odd way to start off a, a method of getting into character Kind of seems like there could have been another thing that they could have used to accomplish the same thing. Like, I don't know, a brick or a heavy pot, like a milk jug. But yeah, no, but that's a not human body. It's a all about body. funny. You got to make them laugh. <laughs> well, if you're going to make them laugh, you might as well do it with a ha ha ha. Well, I was laughing a lot, but in true Barry fashion, also you know, eagerly leaning into the screen while laughing as we talk about the season three premiere of Barry. Again, it's been a long time coming, three years since we last saw a new episode of Barry. It is finally here. Uh, it seems like our characters are found in some very different spots, uh, even between the beginning of the episode and the end of the episode, even though we end in the same location. Deidre, before we get into anything specific, what were your overall thoughts on the much-awaited return of Barry? Yeah, I mean, I loved it. I thought it was a great premiere. Um, they really do a great job of setting up where all of our beloved characters are and were. And um, it really um, shows a, a little bit of a, the passage of time for, for these characters, as well as kind of acknowledging the passage of time in real life. Bill Hader is a little grayed. Um, he's got a big old beard now. We love yeah. to see it. Well, um, well, I was going to say, do you love to see it, though? Are oh, you like yes. team, team Beard? Or I, I guess I should add specifically Team Beard on Bill Hader. 
I'm always team facial hair. So by by default, I am team uh, facial hair on Bill Hader. Yes. Interesting. Is it just like the feeling for you? Um, I didn't think that we'd be um, going uh, this deep into why I'm attracted to facial hair on men. But um, I I would say it's probably something deep down evolutionary. Oh, interesting. Okay, so he brings (laughs) out that Cro-Magnon part of your DNA. Being like, I want him to club me and take me back home. Yeah, I don't know what it is about about facial hair, but um, I like it here on Billy Hater, that's for sure. He looks yeah, good. I mean, he certainly has shown signs of like, I can't use the term regression, though maybe I will, right? Because we talked about this at the end of season two, that him shooting up the monastery was a bit of like a relapse if we're using some addiction analogs. And he looks a little worse for wear, right? He's out until like two in the morning, uh, he doesn't exactly have like the hooded eyes that he did back at the end of season one when he was up for 48 hours straight, but he still doesn't look great. Uh, we only really, rough. yeah, we, we only see a emotion out of him, frankly, at the very end when Kusuno sits him down and like gets him in a corner. So it's really interesting comparing like the Barry we see in the opening of the season one premiere in the opening of the season three premiere of him kind of going back to what he does, except now without the sort of uh, unique organization skills of Fuchs. Now he's going onto the dark web Craigslist style and is now just doing random hit jobs for money. Yeah, I loved seeing this really crappy website of Hitman Marketplace. But yeah, it seems to mostly just be um, people whose spouses have cheated on them. And Barry is just, yeah, picking up odd jobs. Yeah, that's the thing. And you like nuts in the desert, <laughs> cutting out eyelids. Yeah, I mean, it's a very different take on the old Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul pastiche, right, of like what happens out in the middle of the desert in true Barry fashion. It's done in almost a different comic style, but it's really interesting to see where all these characters have gone in the past half a year. I totally agree that I loved it. It was great to see it back. It's great to see these performers back. I think Bill Hader and especially Henry Winkler did a lot Mm -hmm. of great stuff in this episode, in particular, really threading that needle between like, melancholy dark and also like goofy comedy shit uh but also significantly advancing the characters maybe unrealistically so we'll talk about you know could sally (laughs) have been able to get her own self-scripted self-piloted show off the ground in six months i do not think it takes that short amount of a time uh but i think that it's it's really interesting when we predicted like okay we know kusuno is going to close up the school what does this mean for the future of the show it seems like there's a lot of advancements from a lot of different characters. And ironically enough, it is Barry who finds himself sort of back at square one. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, for Sally to be, um, you know, going from like, uh, you know, clip reel full of just random uh, one-line wives to being the showrunner on her own show, um, it seems very far-fetched, but, um, you know, maybe she really is living the Hollywood American dream out here. All right. Well, hopefully you are providing, uh, we are providing some dreams for you in talking about Barry at season three. Of course, we're going to be back here each and every week throughout the eight weeks that Barry season three runs on HBO. If you haven't yet, you can subscribe to our Barry feed at postshowrecaps.com slash Barry pod. And when you're there, leave a rating or a review if you'd be so nice. Uh, We always love when critics come in and give us nice 
comments, as it were. Uh, I know that constructive criticism is something that exists a lot in the entertainment business, but suffice it to say, uh, I do not know how hardened we are compared to some of Kusuno's students. So the more positive you are, uh, the, the more positive we are as well back to the community. And who knows, maybe we'll have a bit of a display of that first uh, at the very end of the show with our very first review. Yeah, um, lots of exciting things happening. The Berry Pod is launched. We're getting reviews and ratings. And the more that we get, as Mike said, the happier we are, of course, but also the more eyes we get and ears we get on the podcast. So we would really appreciate uh, five stars. Yeah, we're the quite the opposite of Barry himself in that we want eyes and ears on us. We do not want to recede into the background. So again, postshowrecaps.com slash Barry pod. We also record these relatively quickly after the episodes come out. We're talking about, I want to say like 15 or so hours after the episode airs right now. Uh, so if you want to write in feedback for us, you can. You can either write in Mike at postshowrecaps.com or if you're a patron in the Post Show Recaps patron discord at any level, you have access to television channels or even at the $10 level, you have access to a very specific channel, which we are filling with NoHo Hank gifs uh, and commentary occasionally about the episode as well. So if you have any immediate feedback, we'll be sure to answer that as we're going through this podcast as well. So let's get into it here, Deidre. Let's get into forgiving Jeff. Now, I sort of want to break this down almost like on a character by character basis because we do dart between so many of them. And like I said, it does seem like everyone's kind of siloed for the most part, though I'm assuming there's going to be more cross mingling moving forward. But let's talk about this opening scene for a second. Donuts yeah, in the desert. About, let's talk about Jeff and why let's he talk be about forgiven. Jeff, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so give me your thoughts on this. We spoke about how last season opened with this very fun thing about the titular Barry not even being there, right? We're seeing Barry's replacement out in Ohio. Here we do see Barry, but he is back in sort of like the rigmarole of having to carry out this job for this man who has been cuckolded, essentially dig a grave and then kill him. Uh, and he is approaching it with, you know, all the energy of a late night cashier clerk at a gas station. So give me your thoughts about the opening to Barry season three, considering how long it's been. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad that they didn't give us a berry-free cold open. I think, you know, they left us, um, you know, really a long time without this show. Whether it was, you know, it, it clearly was not their fault or their intention. They wanted to make this show in March of 2020 and production got shut down. But, you know, we've been waiting so long and... I was really glad to just immediately see Barry um, leaning against a tree, eating a sprinkle donut. Um, also, like, that was the promo image for this season. And so, like, yeah. to get it literally in the first shot, it was like, hey, I know that picture. Um, but, yeah, it's, like, a very – it's a very bizarre Barry, right? Like, he's very kind of disassociated. He's just standing there – you know, waiting for the sign for when uh, he should, you know, shoot this guy in a ditch. Um, and then the, the the other guy, I don't even remember what his name was, but he, the other guy who is forgiving Jeff, he says that he wants to cut off Jeff's eyelids. Yeah, or, or so, pull them off, it seems, considering that yeah. he goes into his trunk for needle nose pliers. Oh, I thought that those were like uh, trimming shears, like pruning shears. No, I don't believe so. I don't think you'd find those in a toolbox unless like you're really, you're really uh, a big botanist. 
Uh, maybe you have to ply the eyelid off from the eyeball in order to then cut it off with the knife that's perhaps in one of their pockets already. Yeah, that makes sense, right? You want to pull it out a significant amount to be able to get enough <laughs> yeah. surface area. Yeah, you yeah, have let's to just get the leverage. <laughs> hey, you know what? Subscribe to our podcast feed. In the first 10 minutes, we're going to viscerally talk about the process of ripping someone's eyelids off. Please, five stars. Yes, uh, five stars only. Um, but yeah, I mean, this this kind of hit just very quickly... Um, is just brushed aside where Jeff is forgiven kind of out of nowhere and Barry's just like, well, well, what now? And then he ends up just shooting them both. Yeah, I, I find it really interesting to butt it up against the last scene for many reasons. First, we now have a runner every single season. Barry has br- been brought in on something because of marital infidelity, right? Like oh, the whole reason yeah. he came to LA in the first place was the whole Ryan Madison stuff was, spe- was sleeping with Goran's wife. Season two, the infamous, you know, Ronnie stuff came from what Loesch was trying to blackmail him with. And now this, I mean, I know Ashley Madison kind of broke us wide open on this, but like people be cheating out there in Los Angeles. People be cheating, and perhaps Alec Berg and Bill Hader have a personal vendetta against cheaters. I'm looking forward to digging deeper into this. I'm pretty sure Bill Hader is, you know, uh, I don't think he's currently um, partnered. Um, I, but I know he has three wonderful children. So. Yeah, I do believe in the time since Barry's season two, uh, he has gotten divorced and maybe was proverbially knocking boots with one of his uh, Disney co-stars, Anna Kendrick. Yeah, I somewhere in there also um his the to-do list co-star um Rachel Bilson. So Ooh. that was that was something as 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 folks from Posha Recaps know, I love the to-do list. So when when those couple of uh co-stars were together, it made me very happy. Um yeah. but yeah, I mean we don't we don't know the the hot goss on whether there was any marital infidelity involved, but perhaps Kirsten and Sasha do yeah. on the mess magnets. We'll have to put in a uh, an inquiry. Yeah, exactly. Put in like a hot request of like, please run down all the women that Bill Hader has been spotted with in the time between Barry season two and Barry season three for research purposes only. Research purposes only. We're very professional here. But the thing that I come back to, again, comparing it to the last scene, is the idea of forgiveness. Right. And it's pretty comical here. This idea of like, again, he's literally digging his grave. He's like, okay, I'm going to kill him. And he's like, yeah, you know what? I changed my mind. You know, my wife has her moments, you know, we're, we're sort of both spurned men at this point. And Barry just straight up kills them saying there is no forgiving Jeff. And you wonder like, has he learned his lesson from the previous two seasons of no loose ends, right? That there's a lot of decisions that he makes a lot of crossroads where He decides to go the more humanitarian route, and as a result, things get even worse for him. Now he decides not to, and you think, okay, so at least he's learned something from everything that happened in these first two seasons. And then we get to the end of the episode, where Barry's like, okay, I have to kill Kusuno. Oh, wait, there's something that I can do? Okay, never mind, get back in the trunk. So, again, if we're talking about almost like um, the getting off the wagon within getting off the wagon, right? This idea of Barry's hopeful optimism. We constantly say he wants to have his cake and eat it too of him being like, Oh no, I can certainly make this happen. I can make sure that everyone has their happy ending. He's certainly calcified to it in the very first scene, but like that has worn away when there's someone he loves actually in front of him. 
Yeah, Barry might need a pep talk of no half measures from Mike Ehrmantraut. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about where Barry finds himself. So, like, let's talk about the context clues here, Deidre. So it seems like Barry is just no longer acting. I know it seems like he's lying to Sally about, like, auditions, but he's pretty much just doing these side hustles by doing hits and nothing else. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems that way, at least. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we do see some actual, you know, potential auditions. I mean, Barry sort of seemed to fall into success towards the end of season two. So I wouldn't be surprised if um, he kind of just falls into some more um, in season three. But I mean, all that we see of him in this one episode is him playing video games with a dead controller and uh you know carrying out hits as well as you know visiting sally on set and giving her flowers that he asked one of these uh um like upset wives on advice on how to buy it but um but yeah i mean barry is does not appear to be acting in this in this one episode from what we've been given yeah i want to break all that down let's start with the relationship between him and sally because i am very confused uh, so yeah. it looks like they are living together. Uh, it looks like, you know, previously, I believe he had been living with two of the acting students. It seems like for whatever reason, in the intervening six months, he has moved out and moved in with Sally. But I don't know. The way their relationship comes across to me, Deidre, honestly, is like staged. You know, like yeah. the, the, way, the way they're talking specifically when she's like, oh, you know, bring me flowers, but then when, you know, don't come to lunch, even if you say you have the free time, like, it seems very much like they don't actually have affection for each other, but for whatever reason, they have to stay together for, and from an outside perspective sake. Yeah, I don't know if they're, you know, hashtag staying together for the kids, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's definitely a, a weird dynamic where I think Sally just kind of like wants a simp um and Barry is just willing to be that for her I guess Mm -hmm. um you know he he the whole you know the whole series has really just been kind of enamored by her in in like a non-traditional kind of way perhaps like I don't think it's necessarily that their relationship isn't built on love um but Barry is definitely just kind of like I don't know it's kind of like a compulsive need to be with her and that's kind of what it's like because I guess we don't really have him exploring other relationship options right he's sort of just like found one and he's like okay this is my person but for whatever reason like the dynamic they're currently in very much seems like a rut from like the brief time that I saw right? Like, seems very affectionless. Maybe it's just that Sally has so much going on. We'll talk about Joplin, and Barry obviously is doing his stuff, but I just found their opening conversation to be so cold and so calculating as well, specifically, again, when it comes back to, like, oh, you have to come and bring me flowers in order to be able to make this scene so that, I don't know, people could see that we have a steady relationship, maybe because I'm doing a show about abusive relationships. People want to see I'm in a healthy one. Yeah, Sally's very transactional like that. She's very focused on how the world sees her. And I think this is just one way she's willing to get that for herself. She just, yeah, kind of like directs the scene 
um, you know, on set, but she also really just directs the scene in her personal life with Barry. What I did notice as well, the not soundtrack uh, within the show, but like the stuff that Barry listens to. I can't remember if we have him listening to a lot of stuff. I did notice that Barry was listening to Metallica when he was browsing Hitman Marketplace. And I do recall, you know, Taylor and those goons back in season one, like they were blasting some death metal, you know, when they were going on that ill-fated mission to to storm the Bolivians. And so I, I wonder if that's a representation of like Barry falling into that dark place. I don't know if Metallica is like, you know, on that road to that to that death metal that was on there. But I do find it interesting, the the music that he was listening to while he was perusing in his spare time. Yeah, Metallica might be the gateway drug of death metal. Um, I admit the only music that I like consciously noticed in this episode was the um, Russian version of Toto's Africa that was oh, playing yeah. at the greenhouse. So this, if you, if you had asked me if there was any other music in this episode, I think I probably would have said no. So whatever metal he was listening to did not make an impression on me. Listen, once those reins are blessed, you didn't really care a lick. You just wanted to make sure the planes were taken care of. Very true. I just wanted to make sure that the reins were blessing. Can we talk uh, about... We're always DTB, parentheses, bless on this podcast. Oh, absolutely. Bless the bless, as we like to say. It's cross-stitched <laughs> over my shoulder, actually. I, I want to talk about this conversation at Ralph's about the flowers, because this is also fun little, like, curb-esque minutia, right? This idea of, like... Do colors of flowers represent things? Are you are you someone who subscribes to that philosophy? That colors of flowers represent things? I mean, people are like weirdly specific about the colors of roses, but that feels like a very kind of old fashioned type thing. Um, I mean, nobody has ever bought me flowers besides myself. So yeah, um, calling out all of my ex-boyfriends. Yeah, you, wow. you're done bad. Um, so I just buy myself what I like, um, but I love the color yellow is my favorite. Uh, so if somebody brought me yellow flowers, I would not be, um, you know, upset about the color being yellow as opposed to pink or red. But Barry, like being on the phone and asking for this advice from the woman who is hiring him to kill her husband while he's telling her that he needs this advice for flowers for his girlfriend, like. She asks, are you some kind of psychopath? And um, that was the pull quote that HBO chose to use for their episode page. Yeah, I found that very interesting of like, yeah. oh, what does this tagline mean? Because you never know when it comes to these taglines, right? I think back to a series like Mr. Robot, which certainly had a bit of ciphers encoded within there that for whatever reason, now they're doing quotes within quotes almost. And it's a really reflective conversation for Barry for many reasons. One thing that I flagged was that you hear this distraught wife say, I'm a good person. I wish I didn't have to do this, which was like so mm -hmm. much of what Barry kept repeating to himself and to us throughout the first two seasons, right? Like, do you think I'm a good person? I don't want to have to do this. There was the whole thing in season one, right? Where he ends up choking that guy to death and he's saying in Spanish, you don't have to do this. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of, you don't have to do this and please don't make me do this in this episode as kind of like tying into the, the themes from season one and two. Yeah, so I find that incredibly interesting. But the way that Barry asks about the flowers in a really detached way, like I'm not going to say it's understandable that she diagnoses him as a, as a, a psychopath, <laughs> but at the same time, the nonchalance with which he goes about being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kill your husband, eliminate, you know, your soulmate from this mortal plane of existence. <laughs> hey, uh, what do red roses mean? 
is definitely something that would make me maybe question my choice in black market hitmen for maybe a hot second. Yeah, it is perhaps psychopath behavior, but also if you're hiring a black market, like dark internet hitman, do you not expect him to be a little bit of a psychopath? Like who, who are they expecting to be the dark web hitmen? I'd be surprised if they weren't psychopaths. To go back to the actor parlance, like he does not have representation at this moment, right? Like he <laughs> is freelance and you sort of like get what you pay for in a manner of speaking that you don't have someone to vouch for them, then you don't necessarily have the guarantee about the quality of work you're receiving. I mean, let's not shit on the entire um, generation of freelancers right now. <laughs> But yeah, um, there, Barry is currently not working under a Fuchs or a Hank who can vet and vouch for him. Yeah, so Barry is not in a great place, right? It just seems like he's kind of walking through life. We see him go through the motions of approaching Sally on set. We'll talk about Sally later. And then he ends up like sort of on his knees in front of NoHo Hank. And I really loved this reversal from the season two premiere now, Barry is not dining, uh, donning a, like, Nordic wig, but if you recall, you know, when <laughs> Hank approached Barry pleading with him, like, please help me take down Esther and the Burmese mafia, and Barry said, no, like, get the F out of here. I'm trying to move on with my life. Here we have a very similar situation where Barry's like, come on, Hank, give me some jobs. And Hank's like, no, I need to move on with my life. Get the F out of here. I, I found it really interesting what a difference a season makes. Yeah, it's an incredible dichotomy. Um, I, I hadn't really connected it um, quite that tightly myself. So um, that's really tickling me right now. Um, I really now wish that Barry had been wearing some kind of a wig um, when he approached Cristobal, or not Cristobal, Hank at his house. Although Cristobal was there too, which we'll get into later. Um, but yeah, I mean, he really is, you know, on his knees begging Hank for work where he spent an entire season trying to get out of working for Hank, um, which ultimately led to the, the debt is paid pin, which is now, of course, still relevant. Um, but yeah, I mean, where Hank was really kind of having a little bit of puppy love for Barry and just always wanting to kind of cover for him and keep him involved, um, you know, this is really the opposite situation here. Hank doesn't really want anything to do with Barry this time. Let's put a Chechen pin into Barry for a little bit, because after this is the Cousineau stuff, and obviously that's going to involve a bit more about Gene himself. Uh, who do you want to talk about next, Deidre? Do you want to talk about Fuchs, Sally, Hank? I think I want to talk about Hank and Cristobal, because Hank and Cristobal are my new OTP. In this house, we ship Hank and Cristobal. Oh, mm -hmm. it's amazing. And... It's one of these things that I didn't necessarily see coming, but the more I thought about it, especially given that season two arc, I totally understood of, I think there's a little bit of like jilted lover stuff going on with Hank, right? That he like really admired Cristobal. And then when someone else got in the way, he got jealous and did some things that were not so great. And now they make up at the very end and, and that bromance drops the B over the course of yes. half a year and now they're living together in suburbia. We love to see it. I'm so happy for Hank and Cristobal. Um, it gives new meaning or new context to the famous 50-50 with Cristobal dance. Um, oh yeah. Which I just love even more More like 69 with Cristobal. Oh my God. Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> you went there as, as was expected. This is a, a full balloon podcast. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, Hank and Cristobal are so cute together. Um, they're cuddling and watching like Netflix and eating popcorn and talking about real estate. I don't know. It's kind of like exactly what I needed. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that it's fun to see him be happy. Uh, I think that, you know, he is somebody who always felt like a bit of a square peg into a round hole of like, here is this bloodthirsty Chechen mob and here's Noho Hank being like, please don't get anything on the carpet. Uh, so yeah, I think that he has this happily ever after in a manner of speaking, even though, again, there's a little bit of an ellipses at the end of there because the ending is not truly found, but at least for the moment he has found his Shangri-La in the form of Cristobal. Yeah, I mean, just seeing Hank and Cristobal together, it it was just, I didn't expect it, like you said. I didn't expect it at all. I loved the kind of build up to it where, um, you know, we see Hank talking to Batir on the phone as he's parking and then walking into the house. And it's kind of like, there's like a little bit of like romantic music playing and he's got like a spring to his step. And like Hank is just happy and it's like, really nice to see and then you see you know he picks up a little a red rose actually incidentally from the table and then um goes into the bathroom where he finds Cristobal showering and then strips down and gets in the shower with him like how what a reveal I was not expecting it but totally pleased I mean I, I had sort of expected a bit once he actually opened the door because look I know that that men can be open with each other in a certain way, but like, I don't ever have conversations with like other men standing stark naked, like in the shower with door open. You know, if I'm talking with them, like the door is closed. I think of this hinting towards a sense of intimacy. Oh, they sure. did a little bit of ha ha ha. Yeah. Uh, considering he's just watching him, you know, fully shower. Right I mean, there. as you and Jess Sterling discussed in the upload season two podcast, there is kind of like a societal thing of like men in a Schwitz bath. Um, mm -hmm. and like not being a man and not being welcomed into like male saunas. Um, you never know. Um, also knowing that Hank was, you know, kind of just an eccentric character for the first two seasons. I was like, you know, this could just be like Hank being Hank, but, um, but it is Hank being Hank in another way. Um, but it was really nice to see, but we actually got some unexpected feedback about this scene from okay. the Kosher Recaps Discord. Um, where the great Jankinator noted that when Hank is, you know, taking his shirt off to get in the shower with Cristobal, he's covered in tattoos, which denote very Russian Orthodox Christian uh, imagery. Jank mm. um, noticed uh, the Virgin Mary in the traditional Orthodox iconography style um, and an Orthodox style crucifix. Um, which is apparently specifically with a scroll and footrest along with a cross. Mike and I are both Jewish. We do not know very much about <laughs> these things. I did. Yeah, study... we, we, know, uh, we tend to not, we tend to stay away from crosses. There should be a, t a certain connotation with them around us. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did study art history, but I, you know, I, I, I don't know the, you know, uh, the ins and outs as much of the individual sects iconographies as well as some of our, our listeners. So Thank you, Jane, for pointing that out. And um, why this is interesting, there's two things. So the Russian Orthodox Church is very, very homophobic. Um, so that could potentially be an interesting kind of uh, duality between, you know, potentially inner Hank and outer Hank. Um, 
I mean, it is literally the outer uh, parts of his body being tattooed. But also notably, this is this is and has always been a Chechen mob. And mm-hmm. Chechens are predominantly Muslim, which is why there is such significant turmoil and conflict in Chechnya and surrounding parts of Russia, where Russia is, you know, not exactly pro, uh, pro-Muslim up in here. So we don't know if this is uh, potentially just a production oversight or if this will become plot relevant, but I thought it was worth noting that we had some very smart, very in-tuned listeners and watchers who are helping share some context for us all. Yeah, I love that. Thank you, NoHo Jank, for some info on NoHo Hank. Really interesting. To your point, I don't know if this represents something about the innie and outie of Hank, if you will, or if this is just like a production oversight of like, hey, let's cover him with, you know, gangster tattoos, even though it doesn't really track from a cultural perspective. But yeah, really interesting. I guess because we don't see Hank with his shirt off. A yeah, lot, not you know, particularly. The shirts that he buys. <laughs> we see him with a lot of very tight polos, but I can't remember ever seeing him previously with his shirt off. Uh, a lot of tight polos and a lot of headgear. Um, but yeah, yeah, I also noticed some kind of like angelic cherub baby style tattoos. Um, also noticed a kind of uh, skull in like a nautical star type tattoo. So should be interesting. They they very well may have just kind of like bought a set of temporary tattoos from Amazon and just applied them all over Anthony Kerrigan's body. But we shall see. So let's talk about the fact that Hank, again, is like in charge of the Chechen mob. He was sort of like given credit with killing Esther at the end of season two. And it seems like he's, he's doing a pretty good job. Yeah. At it, right. As as indicated by him getting brought in for this first interrogation, I will imagine not the last by the police who have spent the past half a year putting together this ironclad case of how it was a Chechen hit that killed Janice. Uh, and Noho Hank, you know, we were waiting for the worst of him. Be like, don't worry about it. I got this, babies. Ciao. Uh, and we expect him to, like, sit down and just completely blow it. But he is cool as a cucumber because he has a fall guy in the form of Fuchs or the Raven. Yeah, he's got Fuchs in his back pocket, literally hanging out in the mountains of Chechnya. But also in his back pocket is all of the heroin that they took from the Burmese shipment, which they are I now, love. yeah, they are now stuffing into the bottom of plant pots. Um, Orange is the new black style, and in just a, a beautiful greenhouse with a sign in all caps, plants exclamation mark. I love that. I love the cover of like, well, no one will suspect that we're up to anything if we state up front what we're doing we're just plants it's just plants. it says it right there on the yes. signs and so notably uh hank has planted fuchs in the mountains of chechnya in this like sketchy little shack yeah it's very much end of breaking bad right uh mm-hmm. walt in a cabin with robert forrester like yeah he's sort of his under witness protection slash sort of just under the thumb of the Chechen mob waiting until everything dies down. And we wondered about this, right? At the end of season two, Barry has it out for Fuchs. He shot up an entire monastery to get to him. What is Fuchs going to do? The answer is go to Chechnya and put some goat milk in your cereal. 
Yeah, so uh, Fuchs is getting deliveries of a cereal called Flaky Critters, which has a very cute raccoon mascot on the box. And then he takes his bowl of Flaky Critters outside to a goat and then just sits down and starts milking this goat for his cereal. I don't know how hard you laughed, but this goat killed me. It was wild. I mean, like any port in a storm. I will say when it comes to farm animal humor for whatever reason goats like top my list yeah goats are big these days between uh severance and uh survivor 41 and Mm -hmm. apparently barry season three yeah and also just like the screaming goats right just like uh, the men who stare at goats for whatever reason goats have really climbed to the top of the mountain as the funniest farm animal out there and so i do love that yeah of anything it has to be goat's milk also right from the teat right oh, so yeah. like unpasteurized poor fuchs is just like having to get by no big 10 to watch even just bowls upon bowls of furry critters and goat milk yeah not just just from the teat like fuchs has to milk this goat himself which yeah, you have to milk your own milk to quote you know a purple person once upon a time yeah you have to milk your own milk <laughs> Fuchs, this is like, yeah, his his demeanor in this entire scene, he really just is like seeming to hate everything about this entire experience and just like very resentful and wants to go home. But the way that he, the way that Stephen Root acts this scene out of like him despondently milking a goat into a bowl of cereal was just so good. So here's a big question, Deidre. How long is Fuchs going to be in Chechnya? Because I don't know about you. Again, you love Alec Berg, you know, Silicon Valley fan. This reminded me a lot of how they wrote TJ Miller off the show once upon a time, right? Where he like goes to visit Gavin Belson when he's in his sort of like Asian retreat and he gets left there. I don't think they're writing Steven Root out of the show, but I wonder with him starting there, like when are we going to get him back mainland? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised um, if somebody from Los Angeles goes to visit Fuchs uh, in Chechnya there. Um, But yeah, I don't think this is a uh, Gavin Belson in Nepal situation. Um, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I I would have to say, you know, mid-season at the latest, he's back in Los Angeles. Um, You know, I mean, Fuchs, as we know, is like a very sneaky guy. He like can talk himself in and out of almost anything. And I can definitely see a future in which Fuchs is convincing the Chechens that it's calm enough to send him back. Yeah, because otherwise, like we basically saw the extent of everything that he's doing, right? Like, I don't know how many more jokes we can mine out of Fuchs being stranded in a desolate cabin in Chechnya. For sure. That said, I mean, there is a fairly known actress that shows up for like approximately three seconds to just give the cereal to him. And I have to think that they didn't bring on Marika Daminchik, a.k.a. Dr. Eliza from Grey's Anatomy um, oh. for, for nothing. Yeah, she also randomly popped up in uh, Inventing Anna this year. So huh. yeah, Marika Daminchik, her representation is putting in work. No, I think, let's call her shot right now, uh, he's going to do her. He is absolutely, like, I don't know if she is 
the wife or the sister or the daughter of that kind of grumbly guy who doesn't regard Fuchs. But like the look that he gives her, oh yeah, that is those are bedroom eyes, no matter how scant the bedroom may be. He also said something along the lines of like, oh my God, of just kind of like, wow, she's very attractive. Um, I mean, she's the only woman that we've ever seen interact with these Chechen mobsters, but also like, yeah, she she is indeed a, a very beautiful woman. Yeah, and I would also imagine there could be a line where Fuchs ends up kind of like screwing quite literally with that and it gets him kicked out of the home, right? Because it's like, yeah. why did you do that? You've like disrupted the apple cart, so now get the hell out of the apple cart entirely. And yeah. that maybe leads Fuchs back to We America. could definitely see Fuchs screw the pooch, I mean goat, um, as well, potentially, um, metaphorically or just, uh, or literally potentially as well. Um, but yeah, I definitely, I don't think we've seen the last of Fuchs in Chechnya. I also don't think that he's going to be there for, you know, the whole season. All right, well, let's get back to L.A. Let's talk about everything going on with Sally. Because, yes, again, so many things are going on with Sally. Yeah, maybe a bit illogically, but in the past six months, you know, Sally did end season two getting an, a rave review for her scene during the review, as fabricated as it may be. And it seems like it has led to the producing of a self-penned, self-run tv series uh we'll talk about you know everything behind that but like what was your first thought upon seeing how far sally has come in six months yeah so this is why i think i don't like to watch trailers so the one kind of flash that i remember from the trailer is like sally on a red carpet like very mm. you know dressed in formal attire for like an award show type situation and I think I would have been a lot more surprised by her being like a showrunner of a, you know, a show about herself if I hadn't seen that flash of her like on a award show red carpet. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, the like in this universe, right, like the the 400 people that were sitting in the auditorium at this review showcase were all industry professionals and they all loved her um mm -hmm. is it that far-fetched to believe that like some of these rich people and hollywood types would want to like you know get some kind of good publicity by doing you know kind of like an anti-me too type story about you know a woman who's survived abuse and is now seemingly coaching her daughter to also not be in an abusive relationship her daughter also played in the show by Elsie Fisher, mm. um, which I had not seen anything from her since eighth grade. So very glad to see her here. I'm pretty sure eighth grade is the, the last thing she's been in and highly recommend that. Uh, I know yes. Bo Burnham has been just like all over the place in terms of the stuff that he does, but very much recommend eighth grade. Absolutely. Yeah. Super glad to see her here. Um, she's doing good stuff here. I can only imagine that we're going to see more of her. But yeah, I mean, to jump right in with uh, Joplin episode 103, um, I got to say, Mike, I expected this to like be about Janis Joplin to somehow be like oh, a Janis Joplin. 100%. I thought we were going full 30 Rock. Yeah, I was Jorm, expecting Jorm. Janie Jorp jump. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Chunk of my lung Chunk and everything. Chunk of my lung, baby. But yes. I guess, was Joplin... No, I, I was going to say, was Joplin her 
you know, her previous Mary name, but I would imagine that Sam would have like sued the crap out of her if she titled the show after her maiden name, right? Yeah, potentially also, um, you know, uh, from a, you know, place name called Joplin. I think it's like Joplin, Missouri, maybe Joplin, Mississippi. I'm not sure. Right. And we know that she is from the Midwest. Yes. So, um, yeah, I so far have not seen anything of why this is called Joplin, but I am very much hoping that it somehow morphs itself into a Janie drunk job situation. It is really interesting because we get a look at it and it really does seem like one of those like this is us parenthood-esque family dramas, I mm-hmm. think is, is the best approach in it, right? Where it is, and it's really interesting from Sally's perspective because the whole onus of her fabricating that ending throughout season two was like, I want to say what I always wanted to say, but didn't have the courage to. Now she has sort of projected that onto another character who did not exist in this story before, right? Now yeah. she has a daughter to be like, oh, you should do this, you shouldn't do this, essentially telling a younger version of herself, okay, these are the things that you should and shouldn't do because I didn't have that person in my life before. It's a little bit after school, especially. Oh yeah, definitely. Which makes it a little, I mean, I guess they're they're not, I guess they're in pilot season right now or like producing the first few episodes. I don't think it's been picked up by well, there is we'll that TV about- executive. Yeah, which we'll talk about. I mean, talk about another great guest star, Elizabeth Perkins. Yes. Love, love me some early stages weeds. And as Celia, she was fantastic on that show. And I love the the real the shots that they take about like network executives and the notes uh, about, you know, I'm so glad we're touching on, you know, you have that thing where- We're touching on it, but we're not commenting on yeah, it. Yeah, that, that the mother and daughter are living together. Like, I'm so happy we're not commenting on the fact that the mother and daughter are living together as if that's like a rare thing, but just almost the like Alzheimer's-esque approach that she takes to that. I miss that beautiful old man, the one who <laughs> says, you can't call me names in my cafe. Uh, and so it's like, you're just talking about a completely different show and it shows how- Network executives are just completely out of touch with actually accessing like the inner truth to these shows. They just look at the exterior and they give it like a Tinder, like, you know, swipe or pass. Yeah. Thank you for putting all that context on this. Cause really I was just in here um, thinking about whether um, we could somehow get Mocha Joe into this universe where maybe he's the man from the cafe who's saying mm. that you can't, <laughs> you can't call me names or maybe it's Latte Larry's. Oh my goodness. Or a chocolate Larry's. Uh, yes, chocolate no, no Larry's. Best order. Yes. Um, and it would, of course, be always at the proper temperature. But yeah, I mean, this scene with the TV executives and Sally and Lindsay, the agent, and Natalie is here. Yeah. So let's talk about this because we had, again, brought up this question with the implication that Cousineau Studio had closed. What happens to this unruly, goofy group of actors? It looks like at least one of them has remained. Sadly, I would not be surprised if a lot of them do end up getting cold just due to, like, COVID reasons. If it's yeah. like, let's write them out for the time being. Darcy Carden is still on board, but now she has gone from, like, Cousineau's de facto assistant to Sally's, looks like, like actual real. assistant? Yeah. Yeah. Sally's, honestly, her behavior towards Natalie is really gross. Um, I mean, she, she makes these statements of like, I wouldn't be empowered as a woman if I didn't have other women here to bring up with me. And then also basically is like, don't talk. So she's silencing women 
and then asks her very pedantically to like cut herself some carrot sticks. I, I did yeah. not love this from Sally. There was a lot here from Sally that I just really did not love. But like this in particular, um, I I just it struck a nerve. Um, I have been, you know, an outspoken woman or an outspoken woman. I am not multiple women, surprise. Um, in meetings, not in, you know, Hollywood meetings, but, um, you know, who has then been later silenced by other women and this is like a societal thing that we absolutely cannot be doing right now. It's the most anti-feminist thing that there is. So um, really did not love it from Sally and, you know, appreciated that the show was really showing her in a very negative light about it as well. Well, that's the thing though, is that I do feel like since day dot, like Sally kind of sucks as oh, a yeah. character. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the reasons why she ends up really finding companionship in Barry is because like he just listens to her talking all the time and you know we want to certainly find sympathy in our characters and we certainly do I feel like Sally's journey in in particular with season two I found really interesting but they are certainly not afraid to show her in a really bad light like a lot of these actual criminals and killers and we get that here I think the camera wants us to know that as well considering how tight it goes in on Natalie like really just plotting her, you know, uh, her supervisor's demise as soon as the show ends up taking, like, Natalie is bailing off the ship. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I would not be surprised if the storyline for Sally this season is really just focusing on her, um, you know, kind of descent into being an even worse person than she already is because of, um, you know, the fame going to her head. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of, again, to go back to 30 Rock, right, when Liz Lemon did the Deal Breakers talk show, Mm -hmm. and she, like, turns into a monster over the course of one episode and then gets her comeuppance. It'll be more stretched out, but I I do believe that that will happen. I will say, Barry, I think something underrated about the show is its cinematography, and I'm I'm a sucker for a tracking shot, and I love the tracking shot through the set of Joplin. We love a one-er on this mm-hmm. podcast but also bill Hader also seems to love a wonder because all the episodes that he directs seem to have one um but yeah there is some phenomenal cinematography in this episode um very long um one shot uh kind of procession as sally is walking from one end of the set you know just kind of like approving things left and right very rudely i might add but um you know and then the cinematography um really hits for me especially kind of in the middle of this um where after she reaches kind of the end of the set and she's in darkness and then a red light goes on where you know I I don't I've never been on a set I I don't know like this it seems to be a thing but like the red light there just really kind of like backlights her and it's a profile shot and it's just simply beautiful um she takes a beat and then just like she just keeps going there's more one shot tracking as she is, you know, continuing to move towards um, her scene. And then, you know, she sits down immediately. She hits her mark and she says her lines as Jean Cousineau taught her. Yeah, I really love this. And to your point, it reminded me a lot of, you know, as much as Sally will insist in the theater, it's this, in the, you know, film world, it's this. It very much reminded me of like being backstage, taking a breath taking your moment and then stepping out into the light. I mean, that's what happens here when the lights turn off, right? Mm -hmm. Like Sally gathers herself for half a second. She's out of showrunner mode of picking out what is blue, what isn't blue. How does the fight choreography look, et cetera. I will also say like, 
I mean, I don't know. I just watched the dropout. So like far be it for me to be like, why are they putting all this stock into this like <laughs> young unknown person who has never worked on a show in a major capacity before? But I guess if you really- As we know, that, yeah, old white men love young blonde ladies. Yeah, I just find it interesting that like she is running every single facet of this. Yeah. Like, she's Issa Raying it. Oh, 100%. Yeah, she is involved in the prop. She is involved in the costumes. She is involved in the direction. She is involved in absolutely everything. You know, she's editing the script. Like, she truly is. Yeah, she is running this show. And it's very interesting to see. I mean, to see like her personality reaction to it, but also just you know, as opposed to the Sally that we know from season one, especially where, you know, she really had absolutely nothing going for her. She couldn't even get auditions. Yeah. So let's finish off with all things Gene M. Cousineau, because Gene is in a not so great place considering what he knows about Barry Berkman and what he's been stewing on for the past six months. So I guess we should mention at the top here, I was a little confused, Deidre, was he living with his son and grandson or were they living with him or helping him out? So I had the same thought. And I think that Leo and Gordon, his son and grandson, are living with Gene. And this is why. The walls are still covered with Gene theater posters. Yeah, I saw the, I saw the Equus one as he was <laughs> yeah. walking out of the, the house. I don't want to imagine Gene Cousineau in Equus, knowing the very Ugh. small amount of Equus that I know. Yeah, I mean, um, talk about, you know, funny farm animals. Not so funny stuff going on there with farm animals. Yes. Uh, I don't want to talk about straight from the tea in regards to Equus. Like, <laughs> yeah, we, we noted a poster. And I think that Leo and uh, Gordon are living with Gene. Um Gene is like really loving towards them and but he like tips his hat in a really weird way that Leo I think notices where he tells his grandson everything is going to be okay and like in a moment where everything seems to be okay that's a weird thing to say. Yeah red flag red flag red flag yes. of like very much talk of someone who maybe they're commemorating their last day on earth in uh, many ways of speaking. I mean, we should also say here, though, I can remember, did Leo say he had a son in season two, or is this a brand new revelation? I can't remember either. I mean, I could imagine it both ways, but either way, I did not recall him having a son. But it, it still felt truthful in, in that sense. Well, I think it's interesting because Gene is going to swear on his grandson's life, not yeah. his son's life, right? But I guess that's that idea of like the paragon of innocence in our youth, right? Of like, there's a little boy who's waiting at home for me and I want to make sure his grandpa comes home for him, uh, which maybe unfortunately pushes poor Leo out once more. Yeah, it's rough. Um, but before, uh, you know, Gene walks out the door and says that everything is going to be okay, um, we see him both text Barry, offering him some money to help clean out the theater because the theater is closed. I love this because I don't know if you paused it, Deidre, and looked at the previous text that Barry had sent. Yeah. Uh, so good. Natalie said you're closing the theater. Bumper. Is there any way you'll reconsider? Uh, asterisk, asterisk. Bummer. Ha ha. And yep. I, uh, I love that. I love that. A, it's that those given circumstances, right? The exposition of, okay, now we know the theater is officially closing. But also that awkward thing of Barry being like, oh, trying to really casually approach the idea of this devastating moment happening in his life and then realizing that autocorrect screwed him over once more. Yeah, it's a very um, 
relatable visceral experience that I think everybody who has autocorrect enabled on their phones has been in at some point. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's also just a really fun con continuation of the runner of funny texts in Barry. Um, usually they're between Barry and Hank, but um, love to see it also between Barry and, and Gene. Although I think probably Barry ends up having him in his phone as Mr. Cousineau. Let's talk about, though, Chekhov's gun or Rip Torn's gun, yes. if you will. This was introduced all the way back in season one, but now we actually see it complete with a note from the late, great Rip Torn himself. Couscous, uh, try not to blow your dick off with this. Rip, parentheses, dictated but not read. Yeah, this was fantastic. So I have the quote that, so it's... Uh, season two episode one actually uh so barely okay. barely off from episode from season one um so gene says in my bedroom under the bed there's a mahogany box and in that box is a pearl handle 38 special screen used from the movie flashpoint given to me by my former roommate rip torn so i i don't know if this was something that they planned for it to be Chekhov's uh pearl handled gun but um, I, I love that even if it wasn't planned in advance that they picked it up. I mean, it just like continues to show that this show is just very well crafted and they had a lot of time to, to craft it particularly well. Yeah, I think that it's not exactly they knew where they were going with it, but I think what Barry does really well is they'll just purposely leave Bread loose crumbs. threads lying about to yeah. be like oh yeah we should tie that up at a certain point and like from listening to all those after the episodes things when i was binging seasons one and two the way bill Hader and alec burke spoke about it is because they're like okay we got into this corner what do we do oh wait this thing happened you know fuchs's tooth was left at the scene because they pulled right. it out at the season one finale so i don't think they ever purposely look ahead and set it up but i do think they purposely like leave a lot of messy things out there so that when people do get recompense, it comes in the form of those things and there's no like deus ex machina stuff. Yeah, I mean, I I, I can uh, give them, you know, the benefit of the doubt that maybe some of these things were indeed intentional. But yeah, it's very possible that they are just very great at picking up these loose threads and breadcrumb trails here and there. Are you a Rip Torn fan, Deidre? I gotta say, I, I have not seen very many things on his IMDb page. Um, you haven't seen, no, you're not a Larry Sanders person? No, I'm a bit too young for that. Although I'm pretty sure we're about the same age. So I guess I just no, never and, went back when you did. Um, yeah, I, that, that's what I very much like. Only in the past <laughs> few years, I went back and checked it out. But yeah. Larry Sanders, I think especially from like a Curb perspective, it's very much the proto-Curb in many ways. So I very much check it out. But even things like Dodgeball, Man in, Men in Black, you know, he's the big boss in Men in Black. He was Zeus in, Her in Animated Hercules. I admit, I'm pretty sure the only thing I've seen him in is, like, his small role in uh, the early seasons of Will and Grace. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Who did he play in Will and Grace? I think he might have played himself. Just rip-torn showing up he there? might have. I don't remember. Um, Interesting. I, I haven't gone back to rewatch Will and Grace, because let me tell you, I'm pretty sure that did not hold up. I would imagine not, uh, and I don't know why they chose to bring it back as well. Maybe as a mea culpa, maybe because they thought it was fine. I have not checked out the new Will and Grace. Have you? Uh, no. Um, I mean, they continue to bring back shows that I would say in the original run already don't hold up. Uh, let, looking at you, Sex and the City. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, uh, these TV executives, they just have dollar signs in their minds, like we've seen in the beginning of this episode. Hey. Yeah, exactly. They're just saying, oh, I missed that beautiful old show where they say, you know, just Jack. <laughs> What's that? Oh, that's not this show. Okay, well, anyway. Maybe Jack was the the man in the, in the cafe telling him not to tell him. Oh, my goodness. Poor Sean Hayes <laughs> being regarded as a beautiful old man. I mean... He he's not quite as young and sprightly as he was in his um, Will and Grace days, but yeah, I mean, who among depends, us? Is? Yeah, exactly. Uh, depends. Beauty d- depends on the eye of the beholder, and perhaps age does as well. I don't know. So let's get to the tensest moment of the episode, right? These last five minutes, where Jean and Barry are sitting in their office together, and Jean. You would imagine, again, this is something he has been planning and plotting for six months. He finally has Barry right where he wants him. And this, to me, Deidre, is the show in a microcosm of just, like, absolute hot wire tenseness, life or death stakes, and then the gun falls apart, clatters on the ground, and he just goes, oh. And it's just, it's uproarious. Yeah, this was, like, a particularly interesting thing to have happened, particularly in the, like, post Alec Baldwin uh, prop gun situation mm. where um, kind of the opposite thing happens where this is a prop gun that is trying, like Gene is trying to use it as a real gun and he, you know, it just falls apart. Yeah. I love that as well. That much like his plan. Right. Yeah. And for what it's worth, like Bill Hader has a really great performance here. You could see his look very, minusculely but like very significantly change when he says I know you killed Janice like he shifts in his seat a little bit because there's nowhere that Barry can go at this moment but once the gun falls apart and he realizes that Gene's kind of full of it or in over his head now this is where Barry's expertise comes in yeah so Barry essentially you know turns the script so to speak on Gene (laughs) and uh you know I mean he really takes Gene hostage at gunpoint back out to the desert from the beginning of the episode. Yeah, which I would imagine those two jamokes were buried, right? Barry finished burying them? I don't know. I mean, he was running away and back to his car. They might just fully be dead bodies out in the ether. But also, possibly Barry could have gone back. Barry could also be in a slightly different part of the California desert. Um, you know, not here to poke plot holes in Barry season three, episode one, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's that kind of like a similar sunrise sunset type of lighting. So Mm. I just thought this was a Rick, a really great, uh, location that they chose for this. Yeah. Do you think we're going to go back here any more times or do you think he's like, I'm done with this place. And this just served as more of a bookend of episode one. Hmm. I mean, we go out to the desert where Barry trains the Chechen army a lot in season two. And the desert is also part of the season one bum rush of the crystal ball plane in the desert with Taylor and uh, Vaughn and Chris. So uh, the desert does seem to really be kind of a key location for this show and especially with one of the key locations uh being the kusuno theater uh going by the wayside i i definitely would not um be surprised if we see more action in this beautiful desert landscape so what is so interesting to me is gene begging for his life in this moment right the tables have been turned Mm -hmm. and he's saying like we can get past this i'm not going to tell everyone 
I was very much thrown back to the Chris. Yes. It was almost like word for word, exactly the same kind of conversation that he had with Chris back in season one. Yeah. And Barry in that moment did kill Chris and it was very impactful. Yes. In this moment, Barry does not. Do you think it's just as simple as Kusuno means something different to Barry than Chris did? Huh? I mean, Barry and Chris kind of barely knew each other, I think. Um, yeah, they were he, Facebook friends. Yeah, they were Facebook friends. Um, you know, they did serve together, but like in seemingly different units. Um, and they, you know, had only really connected a couple of times since coming back. I think Chris represented something to Barry, but Gene actually is a person that means something to Barry. But what I find really interesting is, you know, the the crux of this entire episode is summed up in three lines. Gene says, I forgive you. And now Barry quotes Hank, right? Saying forgiveness has to be earned. And he's, you know, tearfully about to pull the trigger. And Gene kind of like, yeah, you know, gives it back to him. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of guff with him and says, then effing earn it. Uh, it reminds me a lot of the pilot episode, right? Of Gene's yeah. sort of method of teaching, which is to really like beat you down to expose the rawest, most truthful part of yourself. Uh, it seemed like even when faced with a gun to his head, Kusuno is still able to tap into that style to really get something out of Barry. And I really commend him. We talk about Fuchs getting, being able to get out of a sticky situation, but like Gene did a nice job here. Yeah, he definitely did. I mean, you know, to, to think that, you know, I mean, when Barry is going after these, these men that mean something to him, I mean, he like murdered three entire mobs, um, you know, all of Cristobal's buddies and most of Hank's buddies. Hank has some buddies left. Um, that entire conversation, just side note, was I love it. spectacular. Um, but yeah, I mean, when Barry's going after Fuchs, he takes down three entire mobs. Um, Barry takes Gene out to the desert and uh, hallucinates that he's shot him. Um, yeah, we should talk about that throughout the episode. He should. There are, yeah, yeah, there are just these, like you said, hallucinations. He literally says, I'm losing my mind of Barry visualizing people he likes or loves or are in his life getting shot in the head whether it is sally back on set whether it is gene here and it really purposely i think blurs the lines between reality and fiction of like is this barry imagining him doing it himself is it this idea of like there's collateral damage that could exist around me i'm radioactive yeah i think this is going to be really interesting to explore through the season um when Barry hallucinated this bullet in Sally's head, he seemed to really, I mean, he definitely disassociated, right? Like we see her and her mouth moving, but the scene goes silent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he recognizes that he's hallucinating a lot faster there. Whereas in the scene with Jean, um, you know, I don't know if it's just that Jean didn't immediately start talking when Barry happened to hallucinate that, he was shot in the head but like it definitely seems like there's a look that comes across his head um that he really did shoot gene and that maybe this isn't a hallucination i mean his finger was on the trigger that time whereas he was just talking to sally on set i can imagine that that's a very troublesome uh situation to find yourself in now that being said barry does say like okay we can fix this get back in the trunk do you have any idea what on earth Barry is going to try to do to clean up this mess? Not a damn clue, Mike, but I'm very excited to see what this 
cockamamie plan is going to involve. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, is it a matter of also pinning it on the Chechens as well? Or like pinning it on pinning it on Fuchs? Because Gene did identify Fuchs. So like Fuchs is a really good fall man for all this. But like, this is a significant step, right? Because this is someone who knows Barry's secret. How is he going to be able to continue both him living and having Gene live as well without the thought of, okay, he's definitely going to, you know, rat me out. I have absolutely no idea. I'm sure, especially in his frazzled state, he does have a cockamamie plan in mind and I cannot wait for it to go wrong. Yeah. I mean, Barry is a quick thinker, as we know, with the, um, the Chechen debt is paid pin in the trunk. Um, but I cannot see into the mind of Barry, and I do not know where we're going, but I'm very excited to find out. So before we get into that trunk, Deidre, anything else you want to say about episode one of Barry season three? Oh, I just think this was a phenomenal um, start back to the show. I mean, it just really reminded me how much I missed it. Uh, it also made me very grateful that I had done the rewatch with you uh, yeah. and all the listeners because... Oh, there was so much stuff that I had totally forgotten from the first two seasons that is immediately relevant again. So, and not just relevant plot wise, but also as you know, like character beats and parallel scenes. Like this is just, this was a phenomenal, phenomenal season premiere. And I'm so excited for this season and season four, because apparently they've written the entirety of the next two seasons. And this is just going to be such a fun adventure. Yeah, so to extrapolate on that a little bit, so this came from an interview with Bill Hader with uh, my lovely home when it comes to reality TV coverage, Parade.com, where Bill Hader had said, so they wrote season three, they were about to start shooting season three when COVID started happening, and so they used that interim time to actually start writing season four, but then once they started writing season four, they went back to rewrite season three. So I know we talk about the whole not Chekhov's gun, but like being aware that there was a gun set up in the first act, but we might see more tight plotting between seasons three and four, considering that season three was sort of created in a reflection of, okay, we know what's happening in season four if it happens. Yeah, I love tight plotting. I mean, especially when it comes to like, you know, these shows, which often are about time travel, but like the tight plotting, I think is, is where the shows hit me hardest. I just, I love tight plotting. I love high stakes. I'm so excited that Barry is giving me all of the above and fun comedy to boot. Yeah, I'm really excited for this. It continues to really beat the drum of this dark comedy that we have truly loved for 16 episodes at this point. The 17th was no different. Took a little bit of a second for me to like get my equilibrium and be like, okay, what's going on? Sally's making a show. Uh, You know, the police are doing this investigation. Hank is now living with Cristobal. But I think (laughs) once we got once we got settled back in, and especially the performances that were brought in like the last five minutes of the episode were sublime, and it makes me so happy that I get to cover this with you each and every week because we also have no freaking idea where this show is going to take us any week out of the year. Yes, and we are hashtag blessed, DTB blessed um, to get the opportunity to podcast for all of you and honestly for us too. This is a lot of fun. Exactly. Help us help you or whatever that sort of reversing is. I feel like I'm no ho Hank misquoting things like the Shawshank <laughs> Redemption. 
Yeah, well, um, perhaps um, well known is the fact that I've actually never seen the Shawshank Redemption. Oh. And uh, for my Hosha Recaps theater appearance, when I did indeed do the to-do list, um, because the poll voters chose that, um, perhaps infamously the Wario bot chose to submit a, a, a draft pick for that poll as the Shawshank Redemption. So um, I have still never seen it, but if NoHo Hank is going to continue to quote the Shawshank Redemption and SEAL Team 6, um, perhaps they're worth a look. I mean, Shawshank Redemption, I do know is worth a look. I just haven't gotten there. Yeah, there's a lot to take in nowadays, especially (laughs) seven more episodes of Barry coming up. Again, we'll be back next week covering episode two each and every week for the next seven weeks. If you have any feedback, reach out to us, mike at postshowrecaps.com. You can write in like NoHo Jank did uh, on our Discord feed as well, uh, where we have so many things going on. You mentioned the uh, Postshow Recaps Theater as well as the Wario bot. Let's keep (laughs) going on that inside joke train, DJ, because I know we had one review yes in, in, the, in the intervening weeks since our berry feed has been created at postshowrecaps.com slash berry pod do you want to do us the honor of reading it out yes i would love to do a dramatic reading of the review from australian itunes um graciously submitted by sean uh so we've got it's titled a chance pairing you don't have to pretend to be an actor to show how much you'll be laughing at the commentary of Queen Deidre and Mike Bloom. My only worry is who will be watching the casino for 90 minutes a week. I hope no one triggers the Wario Overtime contingency. So if you want to know what the hell that means, become <laughs> part of our Discord at postshowrecaps.com slash patron. Also, this week, uh, I'm going to be doing the Post Show Recaps Theater movie night. If you want to watch Mystery Men, which is a real throwback pastiche of all things 90s culture, you can check that out on Thursday night. But there are many, many reasons to become a patron of Post Show Recaps. I won't give the whole, you know, uh, monologue or anything. Maybe we'll save that for another day. Deidre, if anyone wants to follow any stuff that you might be doing on social media or in the occasional podcast world, how can people keep up with you? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at DHLips and feel free to tweet us your theories, comments, you know, tattoo iconography analysis. Shoot it all our way. We'd be happy to receive it there. Yes, uh, we want to get all the bullets right through the center of our mm-hmm. heads from a metaphoric perspective. Metaphoric bullets. Yeah, not a realistic perspective. And of course, you can follow me at a Mike Bloom type and check out all the other stuff I'm doing uh, and what Posha Recaps is doing in general. So that's going to do it for this week on the Barry Podcast. Next week, we are coming back for episode two. A really nothing doing. The next time on was one five-second scene of Cristobal propositioning two girls selling lemonade across the street yes uh i watched that and uh did not realize that it was only going to be five seconds long and then busted a gut laughing when i realized that it was over um yeah really really excited to see cristobal um purchase two limonades next week yeah so limonada is also the name of the next episode so oh, maybe well, there we a, go a cristobal centered episode we take a look into the crystal ball yeah. and look at what cristobal has to offer on Barry. Who's to say what's going to happen on this wild show, but I'm very happy to be along for the ride. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you on the Flippy Flops.